Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to another version of Bill Roden on Sports, uh, Bros Pod. I'm in an undisclosed location, upstate New York. Uh, where are you, uh, my co-host Jamal Murphy? Where are you? We're we're in the normal undisclosed location in uh, Midtown. Oh, you, oh, 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 okay. <laughs> uh, hey, 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 Murph, how you doing? I'm good. How are you? It's all good. It's all good. And of course, uh, Nabate Al. I guess you're sitting across from. Uh, Great, Nabate Owls. Nabate, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Everything's well. And uh, the address of where we're at is... uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hey, 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 Joy, got to give uh, Nabate, he just got married, so he's still like in his euphoric... uh, euphoric. I get it, I get it. And our our, our guest, um, a really special guest, is the great Joy Reed. You've all seen Joy for years. She's the wonderful host. MSNBC's AM Joy. She's out with a eviscerating book on a POTUS 45. It's called The Man Who Sold America, Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. Um, it's a very provocative book, and um, the book came out last week. First of all, Joy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Great to be here. Yeah, and, uh, and I think Aaron Matthewson, our wonderful producer, is also going to join us. Uh, so, so Joy, we, we, we talked about uh, this book Sunday before it came out. Um, what's, what's been the reaction uh, to the book? I mean, this man is such a polarizing uh, figure, and I, I know you've probably been in his crosshairs, but uh, what's, what's been, um, I think the book was released on two, last Tuesday. What, what's been yep. the reaction to it, have you, and have you got any reaction from the, the White House? No reaction from there uh, so far, but so far the reaction has been really great. I actually did an interview uh, earlier today with Michael Medved, conservative uh, radio host, and I think the thing that it's very hard to argue against is that Donald Trump is a very bizarre, um, unique president that isn't like anything we've had in the office before, so I don't think anyone has challenged me on that. And I think that also people have appreciated just having the history of this presidency so far kind of all written down. Because, Bill, as you know, he's doing so much that it's easy to forget. And so part of, you know, the reason I'm glad the book came out now is just to be able to remind people of what he's done and what he is before we just forget it all. Let me ask you this. I mean, I know we've got a lot of ground to cover, but I was having this discussion with the mayor of this town where I live, and we said all this is well and good. It's very polarizing, but bottom line is how do you defeat a person in, 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 a, in a traditional race uh, who's non-traditional, who has no shame. You're normally in these races, and you, you've covered races over the years, Joy, and, you know, the idea is to outshame somebody and to put somebody on the defensive, you know, like Kamala Harris put uh, Joe Biden on the defensive. But how do you defeat a person who has no shame, whose who's fan base, whose base is basically with him, win, lose, or draw, I mean, what, how do you, this is a different type of tactic. How do you defeat somebody like this? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is acknowledge that he is not a normal president or a normal candidate. 
And, you know, to the extent Democrats try to treat him as a normal opponent, they'll definitely lose. You know, Donald Trump is not a normal politician. He's a celebrity and he's running what he is operating as a TV show. So you have to realize that, you know, as one Republican strategist who, uh, told me when I was in South Carolina, you don't beat showbiz with no showbiz. And I think right. one of the challenges Democrats have had is that they see this showbiz president and still try to treat him like he's just a weirder George Jeb Bush. And that's not going to work. And I think the, the media has the same problem. They're, no one's, Everyone's treating him as a normal politician. And, you know, people like Speaker Nancy Pelosi and others are assuming that we're going to have a free and fair election. I think we should assume we're not. And if the election is going to be interfered with by foreign governments, maybe not just Russia, but multiple governments are going to weigh in to help him. You're already seeing trolling, um, attacking the candidates before one is even picked. There's going to be a social media uh, campaign to undermine whoever the Democrat is. It's going to be a propaganda campaign like nothing you've ever seen. Meanwhile, Donald Trump is doing the world's biggest and most watched TV show. So you don't defeat him with traditional politics, that's for sure. So how do you be? I mean, I, I know that as, as journalists, that's not necessarily our job, but um, we also sort of record history. How, how do the Democrats win this election? Well, I mean, they, they, there is no taking away Donald Trump's base. You know, their devotion to him is religious. So, you know, talking them out of voting for Trump would be like talking, you know, a Methodist into becoming a Buddhist or talking a Buddhist into becoming a Muslim or talking a Muslim into becoming a Jew. They are a religion. So the reality is I think that Democrats need to stop looking at the Trump voters as potential targets because they aren't going to vote for anyone but Donald Trump. And they're going to crawl over broken glass to vote for him again. They'll do anything to keep him in. And, and they need to remember that Donald Trump is to uh, white Christian America what Barack Obama was to black America. Mm -hmm. um, ta Coates has called him the first white president. He's the first president <laughs> to run on explicit white ethno-nationalism. And even when, even if people don't think of themselves as white nationalists or as particularly racist, his appeal is really to their gut. It's to the sense that a lot of white Americans have that they're losing the country, that they're losing it to brown people and black people and immigrants and gay people and trans people who want to be in the bathroom. They feel they're losing the country as it was when, how they remember it. So Donald Trump appeals to that in them, and nothing's going to shake that. There's no way to sway people away from that. You can't offer them free college, and suddenly they're not afraid of illegal immigration, right? So I think Democrats have to realize, number one, don't go after his base. They are leaving him. And then number two, the Democratic base is larger than Donald Trump's base, much larger. It's 60-40. Right. But the mm -hmm. problem with the 60 is that most of the 60 don't vote. So they need to figure out how to get people off the sidelines the way Barack Obama did. That's how he won. He had a few converted Republicans who voted for him, but mostly he brought out new people, young people, people who weren't really interested necessarily in politics. If Democrats could just get, you know, young voters under 30 to vote at the same rate that older voters over 60 vote, they would win. And remember, they don't need to win a million more people. They need 80,000 more people. Hillary Clinton lost by 77,000 votes in three states. So they need to pick up Michigan Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, or somehow win Florida. You just need to win those, win three states back. That's it. Because you're starting with the base of what Hillary Clinton was able to win, as long as you don't lose people. And there right. are some candidates I think might go lower, but most of the candidates should be able to start from her base and build. But don't make any assumptions. Go to the states you think that are safe and make sure they're not, make sure they're safe. 
register a lot more voters. A lot more black voters would be good. You know, register more Latino voters and get them to the poll. The way you win elections is real simple. Have a message that understands it's a binary choice, him or them, him or her maybe. And oh. then understand that they're going to attack everything about her. So go and defend her to your base. Get them to the polls, period. You win with turnout. You, men- you mentioned press coverage of the president and how this is not a normal, normal president. What's your take on how, how the, the, you know, the mainstream press covers him? You know, I watch him a lot of times. I, you know, he, he, he lies all the time. We know that. So it always kind of bothers me that the press seems to take what he says so seriously uh, rather than treat it from where it's coming. Um, you know, what's, what's your take on the way the media deals with him? Yeah, I think for the media, we haven't learned how to deal with Donald Trump because the media is not used to dealing with a demagogue and they're not used to dealing with a fellow member of the media who's acting in the role of president. So what the press tends to want to do, and in this book I quote a couple of you know pretty harsh media critics, including Jay Rosen at NYU who's, and Eric Bollert, who was at Media Matters and is now at Share Blue, who say, look, the media, number one, has been scared stiff by Republicans. Right. who for 40 years have accused the media of being in the pockets of liberals. And so the media go out of their way to prove that they are, quote, fair to the right. <laughs> and they tend to give much more deference to Republican politicians than they do to Democratic politicians. It's much harder for them to criticize George W. Bush than it was for them to attack Barack Obama for wearing a tan suit. They didn't question the rationale to go to war in Iraq, but they questioned literally everything Barack Obama did. The rollout of the health care website wasn't good enough. He was savaged by the press. Donald, uh, George W. Bush finds no weapons of mass destruction. The, the press takes forever to admit that they were duped. So the reality is just understand that Democrats get a tougher go from the press because the press is own anxiety about seeming liberal. And then Donald Trump takes advantage of that, plus the fact that he's a celebrity and he's a media guy, so he knows how to play us. He knows mm. what will make us watch. He knows how to get us to break away and cut away from whatever we're doing and watch him, even when he's doing nothing. He'll walk out to do a press conference, and the media is so eager to have a press conference with a president of the United States that they'll just cut into whatever they're doing and watch him. They love his rallies. They'll watch them all the time. They're just entertainment, even though they say the same thing every time. And it's been really hard for the press to walk away from that model and to stop treating him as just a normal president. Um, and even lauding him for doing nothing. He goes to North Korea, crosses the DMZ, and, you know, cuddles up to one of the most murderous dictators on earth. And some members of the media and some channels, which I which shall go unnamed, treated it like, you know, the falling of the Berlin Wall or, um, you know, Ich bin ein Berliner by John F. Kennedy. They treated him, as if, they treated him like Winston Churchill. Right. And not really analyzing, wait a minute, what was he doing there? Did he do any diplomacy? What was the point? And did he just coddle a dictator who sent an American boy home essentially brain dead? So it's, it's, it takes a while then for the media, and it's typically the more partisan media that will, like MSNBC, that's, you know, that's at least got a prime time where people can analyze him without worrying that we have to coddle Republicans. Um, that then people say, oh, wait a minute, maybe that was nothing. Right. It's, it's frustrating. We talked about this, but that's part of our dilemma as a media, whether it's the New York Times or the Washington Post. This, this person has been tremendous for our business. He, he's revived dying institutions, uh, and it puts the media in this, in this uh, between this you know, rock and the hard place. But 
isn't that almost the crux of when you talk about the media, the dilemma is that we need him. You know, the media needs him. Yeah, I quote, um, you know, Les Moonves. There's a famous story that a reporter tells that I quote in the book about Les Moonves, who was the president at the time of CBS, who, of course, since left in a Me Too scandal. Uh, but Moonves is, is, is talking about the state of the media at a big conference for, um, you know, CBS, ABC, all the big outlets. And he says, you know, during 2016, Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's great for CBS. And the reality is Donald Trump produces clicks, he produces views, he produces interest. People are watching even our channel like never before. So there's an interest in him that is partly based on our interest. He revived a lot of, you know, people who maybe weren't reading the New York Times to get a subscription. You felt like you needed a subscription to the Washington Post. So there is this weird relationship. And, you know, to go to the Times for a second, Donald Trump has craved the respect and attention of the New York Times since he was in New York in the 80s, and he's never been able to get it. But now the Times and Dean Burkett, the editor, they find themselves in this weird position where they both want, they both have investigative journalists who are doing award-winning work covering his scandals and his criminality, but they also want access to him. And so you get some of these interviews in which he's just allowed to spew whatever it is he wants to say or where he's treated with this deference that any president would, or not really any president, any Republican president would. And so you get this weird balance where the media sort of almost gives him, you know, extra respect because they don't want to look like they're at war with him. Um, but at the same time, he manipulates us all the time. So it's, 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 a, it's a scary position to be in. Speaking of his time in New York City uh, in the 1980s and 90s, your book uh, opens uh, talking about that. To, in order to fully understand Donald Trump, you have to come up in the 80s and 90s. I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s in New York City. Jamal has built, lived in New York during those days. And so we saw th- what Trump was all about, being hungry for attention, hungry for media, hungry for for having eyes on him. So explain um, explain how he's been able to use those, you know, how he was able to develop that during those days and be able to use it to his advantage because we're now in a social media era where anyone could say anything or, or, or express themselves in any which way. Yeah, I mean, Donald Trump was like, he was almost the original Kardashian, you know. He, he was so hungry for attention and could get attention for doing anything or nothing. Um, at the time, he was portraying himself as a self-made billionaire um, who was, the star of the real estate market in Manhattan. His father was the real billionaire, the guy who had made, you know, a billion dollars plus in the real estate market, but really in Queens. And he was kind of looked down on as this mean, miserly guy who was responsible for destroying Coney Island um, and who ran essentially a bifurcated system where he didn't want black people in his building or when he had to put them in housing, it was not good housing and dilapidated, um, where they would put C for colored on the application to make sure no black people were able to move into his buildings in Queens. You know, they bought into Starrett City and some of the biggest developments that we who lived in New York know about. And Donald Trump inherits a lot of his money. Um, his oldest brother, who was supposed to be the heir, really wanted to be a pilot. And the father, who was this notoriously mean guy, Fred Trump, um, whose father was a, a kind of bootlegger and ran a brothel in Alaska when he came to the U.S. as a German teenager and speaking no English, um, and they managed to start buying homes and becoming rich. I mean, the father was a racist. The father was arrested at a Klan rally um, when he was young. So 
Trump grows up in this household. He inherits a bunch of the money. And because the older brother didn't want to do it, he inherits running the father's empire, and he proceeded to run it into the ground. Um, by the time Fred Trump died, Donald Trump had sucked up so much of their fortune that his siblings, his sister um, in particular, they had to devise ways to keep him from getting his hands on any more money. The father just kept bailing him out when he would fail and bailing him out and bailing him out. And ultimately, by the early 1990s, Donald Trump was a billion dollars in the hole. And the only thing that bailed him out that time, because his siblings were guarding the family money, was Russians. And Russians just took an interest in him and started buying his bill, buying into his building, buying apartments. And, you know, if you listen to Craig Unger and others, laundering money through his building. And that saved him financially. So around this time, Donald Trump is also pushing himself as a celebrity. He wants to be around Anna Wintour from Vogue. He wants to be around Michael Jackson. He wants people to come to his Mar-a-Lago estate that he had turned into a profit-making enterprise when he went bankrupt because he didn't want to lose it. So to keep it, he makes a deal with the bank saying, I'll make it make a profit. So Trump is creating this image that's fake, but it's so compelling that the media eats it up. Hip-hop eats it up. He mm. becomes a buzzword for wealth in about 67 different rap songs. Right. People mm. just take him as this fun billionaire. He's in Home Alone, little cameos. He's in cameos in movies, and he just becomes a part of the culture. And at the end of the day, The Apprentice, he gets to star in it because of that reputation. And at the time that he signs on to The Apprentice, he's basically broke. But he's portrayed as this billionaire, Lothario, the women love him. He's stepping out of private jets and into limos. None of that was real. But he portrayed it so well that he convinced America that he was a mogul and that being president, he could make us all rich and happy and powerful. And it worked. One of the things, you, you make a number of comparisons, but you compare Trump, and this probably can connect with millennials, you compare Trump to a, a comic book villain, uh, the, the Joker, uh, to be exact. Tell me about, I mean, let's, let's dig deeper in that, in that comparison. Well, you know, when I just look at Donald Trump, he, you know, the weird hair, the way his hair kind of, you know, defies gravity, um, what, what there is of it, and just his extra long ties and his suits that don't fit. You know, this is a guy who's supposedly really rich, but he, he dresses like he doesn't have a tailor. Um, if you saw him when he went to visit the Queen of England, his waistcoat, the white part that's supposed to hang just below the, uh, the belly button, was hanging almost down to his knees. He, he sort of looks absurd. Um, a lot of what he's wearing is his own product. His ties, extra long, are made by Donald Trump, you know, in sweatshops in China. And he's just this strange, you know, sort of pernicious figure um, in a lot of the ways that the Joker is. So if you, you know, I grew up on DC Comics. I know that the Marvel Comics are the hotness right now, but DC, when I was growing up, were my preferred superheroes, right? Like Superman and Batman. And um, in Batman, the Joker is the principal adversary of Batman. They're both billionaires. They're both angry. They're both bored. And Batman decides to use his time and his money to make gadgets to save innocent people from criminals. And the Joker decides that his obsession is going to be to stop Batman. And it's all he does. That's the only reason he exists is because he hates Batman so much. And so to me, Trump reminds me of a, the Joker and his Batman is Barack Obama, because Barack Obama represents everything he hates. Uh, he represents multiculturalism. He represents the rise of non-white America. He represents, in his mind, Muslims creeping into the country, even though Obama is not Muslim, but his middle name is Hussein. You know, I mean, he represents everything bad. 
and yet he gets everything good. People love him. He's a popular president. He gets a Nobel Peace Prize. So in his mind, it's like affirmative action. He gets this stuff because he's black. Right. And a lot of Trump's voters feel that way about everyday black people. They feel like that black person who got the promotion at work didn't deserve it. Their kid didn't get into Harvard, but this black kid did. They don't deserve it. Donald Trump kind of channels all of their anxiety about being white in America, and that's part of the reason he's president. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Again, that's www.audibletrial.com backslash Bill Roden on sports. Check it out. So, Joy, you just mentioned uh, President Obama, and, you know, you've covered, you were covering Trump. You did cover President Barack Obama. What has been the contrast, and are there any similarities? I graduated in 1991 from college, so it was just a year before Bill Clinton became president. So I definitely experienced um, the Clinton years, and one of the reasons I wrote my first book a lot about the kind of progression from Lyndon Johnson to Clinton to Obama is that, you know, the Clinton years were like the boom years. It was this time when you could kind of feel like anything was possible. Um, you know, as a young person in New York in the 90s, you could quit a job, get a job. It seemed like, you know, my boyfriend at the time was now my husband. We would, you know, have he would not cash his checks for two weeks and just be sitting there. It's like you always had options and you always had money in your pocket. It was just this really, you know, kind of magical era, particularly for black people, where the greatest expansion in black wealth in American history took place. So you had this particular thing where the president of the United States also seemed to have an affinity for black people, even though we know the crime bill and other things he did were negative. People weren't paying attention to that. People were just paying attention, you know, for the first time in a long time, we have a president who doesn't seem scared of us, you know, who seems comfortable. I mean, Jimmy Carter was in his own way, too, but this guy seems to, like, get us, right? So then you get um, at the same time, a lot of Republicans really fearing that because Clinton was so popular and got more popular when they impeached him, because of that, his wife was going to inevitably be president. So you get this long 40-year history of Republicans tearing Hillary Clinton down and trying to turn her into this demon, into this figure, because they wanted to make sure she would never be president. And, of course, that played out in 2016, where a lot of young people who really didn't know much about Hillary Clinton were getting all these negative memes about her that were pushed by Russians, because, of course, Vladimir Putin hates Hillary Clinton. He thinks that when she was Secretary of State, she interfered in his election, so he was determined to stop her from being president. So you get all of that falling on top of her in 2016 and helping Trump. As far as Barack Obama's presidency is concerned, he represented for a lot of people the culmination and the fulfillment of all the dreams of America, that all of the things that America has said about itself, that we're this shining city on a hill where anything is possible, where this multiracial democracy, oh, my God, that's really true because this guy got elected and no other Western country has done it. But I think what Trump shows is that the backlash to that for white Americans who saw that Clinton progressing, his wife then running for president and this black president, as the end of white Christian America, to quote Robbie Jones. They saw it as the end. They saw it as Armageddon. They saw it as white Christian men being thrown in a corner and black and brown people and gay people and all of these changes that are taking place during Obama's term and DACA and, you know, Latinos rising as a threat. So Donald Trump really honestly is the kind of logical result. 
Uh, Joe, you, you graduated from Harvard in, in 1991 uh, with a concentration of film, and uh, you were a Knight Fellow, I think, in 2003. Uh, you've written a book uh, before this one. Uh, you, you wrote um, a book, uh, Fracture, Barack Obama, Obama, the Clinton, and the Racial Divide. Uh, I think you co-authored it with uh, my former colleague at the time, E.J. Dion. Um, well, no, the next book was with E.J. Then we did We Are the Change We Seek. Um, the speeches of Barack Obama was with E.J. Uh, that's right. Uh, the one you wrote with E.J. Dion was We Are the Change We Seek, the speeches of Barack Obama. Uh, and then uh, the Fracture, Barack Obama, the Clinton, and the Racial Divide. It almost seems, if you look at your work, your book's almost as a, sort of as a series or a trilogy, this book, your, your, your latest book, is almost, almost a logical extension. It's almost a, the logical next step, you know, because, you know, Obama's people argue that Obama created Trump. You know, I mean, not, not literally, but figuratively. Yeah, and he, in a way he did. I mean, the Obama presidency coincided with the 10-year anniversary of the United States Census announcing in 1998, that America would be a, minor, a majority non-white country at the time by 2052. Uh, in the summer of 2008, while Barack Obama is running for president, they said it again. And this time it was a huge, splashy announcement um, that, you know, ran the news cycle for, for a whole cycle. And while most Americans greeted that as interesting or good news or, uh, or as just logic, right, with the birth rates and immigration, et cetera, for a lot of white Christian America, it was a death knell. It was a signaling of losing their country forever. And when Barack Obama then gets reelected, even though, you know, he did better with uh, white Americans than any Democrat had since Jimmy Carter, he won 42 percent of the white vote. He actually, you know, got close to 40 percent of even the white male vote. He got about 47, 48 percent of the white women's vote. Um, he did really well with white voters under 30. But by 2012, Barack Obama had started to do race talk. He had started to talk about, you know, almost immediately he talked about the police officer acting stupidly when he arrested Skip Gates. His ratings with white Americans dropped like 10 percent or more immediately when he said that. And when he talked about Ferguson and Michael Brown and when he said, you know, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon, his yeah, numbers right. tanked even more. White America abandoned, really, Barack Obama in 2012 and where he won the 2008 election by 10 million votes in 2012, even though white America walked away. I mean, he did catastrophically badly, even with young white voters. He did that. He lost everyone, white Catholics, white Protestants, white young people, white women. Everybody kind of walked away. He got 10 percent of the vote of white voters in Alabama. But he still won. He won by 5 million votes. And so what that signaled to white America is that over our strong objection. This guy's still there. He's doing things like DACA. He's letting all of these, quote, illegals stay here, and he's going to keep doing it. Under his watch, gay marriage became legal, something George W. Bush had promised in 2003 that he would put in the Constitution to ban. All of a sudden, all these changes are happening with this black man in office. And a lot of the anxiety around that and the anxiety around the coming demographic shift that were constantly being talked about. The demographics is destiny stuff. The Republicans would not be able to elect another president ever because of the demographics. Produce Trump. Trump is the result of the anxiety that white America felt in large part about Barack Obama. Joy, as, as you know, we have, as you well know, we have 
over 20 uh, Democratic nominees for president at the moment. However, when you look at the polls, there's at least 10 of them that the polls say now would beat Trump. Do you buy that or do you think it's going to take a special candidate, you know, one, you know, one, two or three people that can do it? Or do you buy the polls that, you know, a bunch of people could beat him? I think what the polls show to me is that right now a generic Democrat would beat Trump at least numerically because Trump is stuck at about 41, 42 percent. Um, no matter who you poll him against, he still gets 41 or 42 percent. And the only thing that changes in these polls is how much the Democrat gets. So some of the more marginal candidates get under 42 percent, so they don't beat him. Others get 42 percent, so they tie him. Others get 43, 44, 45. Biden does the best because he's the best known. It's simply name ID. Right. right now, those polls say people know who Joe Biden is and they prefer him to Donald Trump. It doesn't say anything else. Because remember, it's not going to be a Biden who's at 50 and Trump who's at 42 who are running. It's going to be Biden after a year of being torn down and torn apart by Republicans after having Russian bots spread propaganda and lies about him and his family, about maybe, you know, scandals that are fake being surfaced about him and repeated in the press, about the press not wanting to look like they're trying to hurt Trump, so them covering him extra hard and making him more or equal to Donald Trump in villainy because they want to look like they're being balanced. That's what was done to Hillary Clinton. So just keep in mind that the polls now don't mean anything. When there's a nominee, it's going to be a head-to-head. It's going to be Donald Trump who has the power of incumbency, who, have a, who has a diehard base, which now looks like it's about 42 percent of the electorate, versus a Democrat who's less well-known, who's going to be more harshly covered by the press than normally would be because they want to look like they're being equal to Donald Trump. The press is going to try to make the two sides equal. Um, and you're going to have a massive foreign campaign to defeat whoever that is. And we don't even know what that's going to look like. Honestly, I don't even know if the election will be fair. Russians got access to at least 26 of our voter rolls um, in in 26 states. We don't know what they have access to, what they could do, what they could flip, what they could change. Who knows if it's going to be fair? And in states where Republicans run the secretary of state's office and the governorship, there will be voter suppression like you've never, ever seen before. Because Donald Trump is giving Republicans, particularly rich Republicans, everything they've ever wanted. I mean, he may talk like a populist, but he's giving the rich everything. That tax cut was $2 trillion that came out of your pocket and went into their pocket, and they want to keep it, and they want more. They want to get rid of the safety net for the poor. They want to get rid of the safety net for the old. They don't care about the sick. They want to get rid of universal health care and make everybody go into the private market. They basically want a Lord of the Flies where they win. And they'll do anything. And they've always had to shade that in compassionate conservatism and all sorts of other messages that soften it. Trump lets them do it straight, no chaser. Do you think they don't want him there? The rich want Trump right where he is, and they're going to do everything in their power to keep him there. So will the religious right. So will his base. He's going to stay there, white nationalists, all of them. They're going to fight like junkyard dogs to keep that man in office. So Democrats, don't look at the polls. Get your voters together, get them registered, and get them out and overwhelm what's going to be the most probably massive voter re- voter suppression campaign in American history. Just sort of taking up on that, I mean, what, what you say, Joy, is so, it, it seems so dire and, and actually deflating. Um, and again, it gets me back to the opening question. So what do people have to, because it seems like it's not about Democrats and Republicans, it's almost about who... Who loves the idea of democracy? And if you're for democracy, you need to get active. But it, it gets the question, how do you 
defeat this? Well, I don't know if it's defeat him, but how do you defeat this, this, this wave? It almost seems, based on what you laid out, not impossible, but a really uphill climb. It's going to be hard. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 my name is Joy, but I, I mean, it's kind of ironic. <laughs> because I, it's hard for me to sugarcoat it just because I've worked elections before. I mean, I worked the 2004 election, and we were sure that, that uh, George W. Bush would go down to defeat. He was unpopular. The war was unpopular. The lie um, that there was weapons of mass destruction had been exposed. They had leaked Valerie Plame's name, the secret CIA agent. They'd done everything they could to lose. And they won in part because they pro- proliferated in 11 states these amendments to ban gay marriage, which got the Christian right, which is also Trump's base, out in huge numbers. And the Christian right is Trump's base, believe it or not, just like they were George W. Bush's base. It worked for Bush. It could work for Trump. But here's the reality, I think, for Democrats. And you, like you're right, Bill, not just Democrats. Anyone who loves small-D democracy, anyone who believes in liberal democracy, and I don't mean like liberal, politically liberal, like Donald Trump thinks that they fit uh, Dean Baker from the New York Times meant when he asked him that. Liberal democracy, meaning democracy where you freely elect your leader and where your uh, country is governed on something other than ethno-nationalism or on Christian rule or religious rule. If you want to defeat that, just understand, number one, there are more of us than them. The, the people who rally around this kind of quasi-neo-fascist um, thing that we call Trumpism, where it's about white um, Christian nationalism mainly, um, about a kind of economic populism that's fake because it's really the rich getting everything and poor whites feeling like they're getting everything. It, there are many, many more people who don't believe in that. You know, the, the people who think Trump is horrible comprise six out of ten Americans. The people mm. that think Trump is great are four out of ten Americans. There are many, many more of the people who want a, a normal civil, decent America than there are people who want Trump. What has to happen is that the majority needs to act like a majority. People need to grow up and wake up and realize you're not going to get a perfect Democrat. You're not going to get somebody that gives you checks off all your boxes or that necessarily excites you every day. But whoever that Democrat is, unless it's somebody truly unacceptable, Democrats need to rally and they need to vote. Because the reality is, even if you have an imperfect Democratic president, you'd rather negotiate with them than Trump. You know, the civil rights movement was able to win because they were negotiating with Lyndon Johnson instead of George Wallace. If Mm. George Wallace had been president, they would have gotten nothing because he wouldn't have signed it. So the reality is, is that the Black Lives Matter movement was able to grow because the president was Barack Obama and because the attorney general was Eric Holder and Loretta Lynch, and they were sympathetic. So if somebody went for them, and if people came out violently, there were shots fired at Black Lives Matter rallies, the federal government was going to send in the cavalry. There's no cavalry now. William Barr is the attorney general. He's not sympathetic any more than Jeff Sessions was. So you want the government to be negotiable. You want to be able to at least talk to them. And so people need to understand that whoever that Democrat is, whoever it is, y'all better line up like he's Barack Obama or she because that's the only way to defeat him. People need to act. close your eyes and see Obama and vote like it's Obama. Because if people vote in those numbers, Trump will lose. If people say, you know, I don't like their position on health care exactly. It's not exactly what I wanted. I don't, I don't exactly like what they said this day. There's something about them, then he will win. Well, Joy, you compared um, Donald Trump to uh, Nelson Mandela, uh, who also led a racially divided country. Um, Talk more about that, and also what are their biggest differences? Right. So I went to South Africa. My husband and I went in um, December 
um, of last year because, frankly, I just didn't want to be here on my birthday with Donald Trump as president. I just wanted to celebrate my birthday somewhere far, far from here. So I decided to make uh, really my first trip um, to the continent. And I went to South Africa because my father had worked there most of his life. He was from the Congo, but his career was in the mining industry um, in South Africa, and that's where he lived. So um, I had we have very close family friends there. I call him my uncle, but he's really my father's best friend and his family who welcomed us down. And um, for the book, I also wanted to just talk to South Africans because I see South Africa just having grown up with the story of it and of Mandela as the country on earth that's the most like us in terms of their history and in terms of the way race plays out. Um, it's sort of upside-down America. Um, the black population is 90% instead of 14 15%, but they were also enslaved. Um, yeah. White Dutch um, Boers arrived in South Africa in the 1600s around the same time that white Europeans arrived here. And when white Europeans arrived here, they enslaved the Native Americans they found, and the Dutch enslaved the Khoikhoi and other tribes they found. Um, in both cases, they overwhelmed these ferocious warriors who had no shortage of courage but had no idea what guns were about. And they just mm. overwhelmed them with firearms, and they were able to cut down their best warriors and enslave everyone they found and then import more. Um, in the case of the United States, when the Native Americans proved to be not enough labor for them to use for free, they imported Africans. And in the case of South Africa, they imported Malaysians. And the slavery in South Africa lasted 50 years longer, um, well, 40 years longer. They didn't get their freedom until 1990, um, mm. which is shocking. Um, yeah. They were still living uh, under apartheid when Reverend Al Sharpton was fighting in New York City as a free black man, but fighting the onerous, you know, violent, um, white ethno-nationalist in neighborhoods like Queens. So it's just an interesting place because it's so similar um, and the same way that Nelson Mandela, who was actually different from Barack Obama because he was not a community organizer, he was a warrior. Um, his father was a tribal chief, so he was the heir to the chiefdom of his tribe. Um, he's a Zulu. Um, so he came to the fight from a, with apartheid from the standpoint of war. Um, he founded the Mkante Isizwe, which was the militant wing of the African National Congress. The reason he's put in jail is because he was taking up arms against South Africa, taking up arms against apartheid. So when Mandela finally was freed from prison, he was in a unique position to negotiate peace with white South Africans because he's the one who had been waging war against them. So that put him in this in unique position. But you also had Desmond Tutu, who was the archbishop um, of the, the, the Episcopal Church down there. And the sort of end of apartheid was negotiated from two angles. One, you had to sit down with the people who were fighting you, and two, religion. Um, and the um, Truth and Reconciliation Commission was wrapped in Christianity, and black South Africans were told they had to have amazing grace toward their former white captors, that they had to forgive them. And that if they didn't forgive them, that the World Bank and the world's banking institutions would shun South Africa and South Africa would die. So they made the choice, and Mandela made the choice to go for peace and to go for forgiveness and to go for reconciliation. What I see as a parallel to here is that a lot of white South Africans said to hell with that. And the ones who were the most deeply racist fled. About 500,000 white South Africans just picked up and left. And they have formed the core of some of the white nationalists around the world who we're now dealing with. A lot mm. of these international white nationalist organizations 
emerged out of white South Africans who didn't believe that apartheid should ever end. And they went to countries like Australia and New Zealand and have formed the core of white nationalists, in some cases, terrorist groups. So they're very similar. Um, And in the sense of Obama, South Africans revere Barack Obama, just like they revere Al Sharpton, by the way. When we were walking around with him in South Africa, people were crying and hugging him and calling him father. I mean, they really revere him um, because they saw him on TV fighting white nationalism. And so they really admired what he was doing in New York in the 80s when they were still oppressed. So with Obama, the difference is that Obama has this unique moral voice similar to Mandela, but Mandela was talking to a majority who wanted, who knew they had to have peace, and to a white minority who desperately wanted peace. So they wanted to reconcile. They wanted to put aside racism, at least rhetorically, so that they could join the rest of the world. Obama was talking from the minority to a majority, many of whom didn't want to hear it. They didn't want truth and reconciliation because they didn't want the truth part. They just wanted reconciliation. Mm. So the thing they have in common is the disappointment. Um, After Obama, after Mandela's first term as president of South Africa, there was huge backlash against him among black South Africans who said he didn't do enough. He didn't, he wasn't fierce enough. Um, He didn't take it hard enough to white South Africans. He didn't take their land. He didn't do enough, which was going to sound familiar to people who saw the disappointment a lot of black people had in Obama, that he didn't do enough, that he couldn't change the world. Neither of them, it turns out, can change white people. (laughs) You know, it takes somebody white to really make that case. Black people, it's not our responsibility, really, to change hearts and minds. The civil rights movement didn't even, wasn't even trying to do that. They were trying to shame people and change the law. And you could think whatever you want and feel whatever you want about black people, but you couldn't keep us out of your store. Right. Right. Mm. Right. 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 Which, which, you know, which kind of gets back to the, the point. And I know you've got more tours to give, but it gets back to the opening question about how, given all of this, this, this history about who this person is and, and, the, and the dogs, these pit bulls he's unleashed that are running around us. I mean, it's one, you know, yes, white people have to, they have to be the ones to drive this, but it's our survival, you know. And uh, it, I wonder if, if African Americans in this country understand that our survival is, is at stake. I, you know what I mean? I, I think we're so used to the status quo and to just being able to, you know, walk in Central Park and be free and eat ice cream. You know, if people realize that there's a real battle out there and that you better be ready for. Do you, is your sense that people really grasp the seriousness of this? Is that why you write, wrote the book? Yeah, my sense is that they don't. And I, mean, I have a chapter in the book called A New American Civil War, because I think we are in a cold war with each other. And I don't think most Americans understand how far it could slide. You know, my father grew up in an autocratic government in, in the Congo, and when I talk to his friends and compare Donald Trump to Mobutu Sese Seko and expect to be told that's ridiculous, they say, yeah, he is. And, mm-hmm. and governments go bad, and they go bad fast. You know, I, my husband and I went to Cuba in 2007, and there's whole markets where you can see watches that the time was stopped in 1958 when Cuba went from being a fun resort town like the Bahamas to being hell. And, and Poland, which, you know, freed itself from communism um, after the wall came down in 1989, is right back into a fascist government where they have a super Trump who's trying to keep out all immigrants and talking like a fascist. France darn near fell to the Le Pens, who are Nazi-ish, 
So, I mean, we, we are in a, a situation where everything could go bad. And we're such a young country that it could go bad and it could go bad and stay bad. And mm. the people that will be bad for is us. It'll be bad for people of color. It'll be bad for black people. It'll be bad for brown people, Asian people, gay people, trans people. It'll be bad for us, Muslims. And so, and by the way, among Muslims, one in five are black. Mm. So people need to really wake up and realize that just because we're the majority and we run the culture, you know, we run Hollywood and we run the music culture, we run cultural cool, we decide what's cool and what's not, because we run the culture doesn't mean we run the country. They run the country, and they are the minority, just like white South Africans are the minority. But minority rule happens in a lot of countries, and it's happening here now. We already have a rural, white, hyper-Christian minority who runs America. And if you want it back, you have to take it back. And it's not about converting them. It's about defeating them. And at the end Mm. of the day, I think that people of color, white people of goodwill, secular people, Muslims, Hispanics, all of the other people who are not Trumpists, have to win and have to understand that the only way that you have power is to get power. And don't Mm. be embarrassed about it like Democrats normally are, who they're like, we don't really want power, we just want accommodation. Well, accommodation won't save you. You need to get power, and you need to make sure that they don't get power. Because if they have power, this, what you're seeing, is what they're going to do with it. So unfortunately, all that the majority can do is consign the minority to the minority and keep them there. Because if they ever get back power again, they will do all of this again. Well, 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 Joy, I wanted to ask you something about your background. You went to Harvard University and out of Brooklyn, New York, and you said something that was interesting, that you went from a community that was 80% African-American to a community that was 6% African-American. And I went through the same transition as well, coming from uh, from Queens and, and then going from like a culturally diverse place of LaGuardia High School up to the Eastman School of Music, which was a culture shock. So what is your message to young brothers and sisters out there that have to be able to adapt in a different type of environment demographically and how they need to adjust and how they're able to, to remain for lack of a better word, sane in that environment through all the uh, adversity that that comes forward? Yeah, and that's a great question. And, I mean, in between being in Brooklyn and being at Harvard, I was I grew up in Denver, Colorado, in this town called Montbello that was a white flight town. Hmm. So, basically, we had a, a little bit more upper-class side and a more lower-class side, and most of the white people in my neighborhood lived in the lower-class side because they couldn't afford to white flight. And we started out on that side, and my mom got a promotion, and we moved to the other side. So we lived in this beautiful house on a cul-de-sac, and everyone around us was black. The judge in the block was black. The you know Army veteran across the street that had a boat was black. Everybody was black. There were a few white people, but it was mostly a black environment. It was like being in Atlanta, where you saw every aspect of blackness, you know, southern blackness, western blackness, military blackness. You just saw everything. And it was, it was a very comfortable place to grow up where you didn't understand how comfortable you were being the majority until I landed in Cambridge. And then it was a whole different world. Um, there were lots of different kinds of black people, like really rich black people who went to private school, which I had never seen before, um, and, you know, a few public school black people like me. Um, 
But the shock was immediately upon getting to Harvard and having my right to be there questioned. In the first big lecture class I took, a bunch of white students in the class started arguing about affirmative action and accusing those of us who were black of not supposed to be there, that we didn't belong there, that we hadn't earned our place there. And it's funny because the irony is I was living around white people who were legacies who were only there because their parents' last name and their wealth right. and who, right. to be blunt, weren't very smart. Right. A la Donald Trump. Who, right. Yes. And, I mean, we pen. had a lot of those where you were like, how did this person even learn to read? Like, they're not even smart. <laughs> Whereas all the black people that I met were brilliant because to get in, you know, even with affirmative action, you had right. to be, and I was second in my class. I had a 96 percentile SAT. That's what you had to be if you were black. Right. But if you were white, you could be a C student, but you went to the right high school and had the right parents, right. and you got in. So it was a weird culture shock to have to defend my place in that space. Um, and to find a community in that space, because you also had international blackness. Um, well, I grew up being the only, uh, we, our family was the only West Indian family in the whole neighborhood. There was nobody else that ate curry and roti and pepper pot and all the stuff that we ate. Um, there were four African families, one, two, three, four, and we knew them all in, in Montbello. But, you know, at Harvard, there was lots of Africanness and Caribbeanness, and that was beautiful. Um, and so what I would say to black people who are trying to navigate spaces where, let's say you're coming out of an HBCU and then all of a sudden you're in the workforce and it's just you, the best right. thing you can do, and a lot of the folks I work around have done this, is that you have to find your clique. Having, you know, black colleagues around you that you can download with is so important. Um, when I was at the Grio, we were like the black hangout space in NBC. So we got to know everybody black who worked in anywhere in NBC because they would come to us because we were like a dozen black people. And they were usually the only black person on their team. And I'm talking anchors as well as, you know, producers as well as PAs would all come and we could give them that space where you have that moment to download and with people who understand what you're going through. I think it's important to develop a community where you have enough black people in your circle professionally that you can have as mentors and as colleagues and as just people to talk to because it can be emotionally and psychically draining to be the only one. Um, and to be the only person in the room. And the second thing I would say to young people is, even if you are the only person in the room, you still have to speak up. Mm. If you don't say anything, it's like the jury with one black person on it that ends up convicting someone that that one black person felt was innocent or not convicting a George Zimmerman when the one woman of color felt overwhelmed by the other jurors and she just couldn't stand up to them. You have to try. You know, I have a friend uh, who's black named Michael who hung a jury that was trying to try one of these black guys who was accused of terrorism during the Bush administration. They hadn't done anything. He was willing to hang that jury, and he didn't care how many people hated him. <laughs> he was like they all hated him by the end, but he didn't care. And so at the end of the day, I think you have to somehow find it inside of yourself to speak up for us because, unfortunately, if you don't, bad things happen, <laughs> and if you do – They'll have to respect you. Uh, before before we let you guys speak on, um, you know, why you wrote the book, the purpose uh, behind the book. And, um, you know, because I would assume you never thought you would be writing a, a book about Donald Trump, uh, you know, no. before, the, before a few years ago. <laughs> I know. I think... It's true. I, I, exact, well, yeah, I didn't think he was going to be president. I was one of the people who believed the data. You know, I, I'm such a numbers person that I'm like, yeah, the data says Hillary will win. Yeah, I was right um, there with you. But... 
Yeah, and now I know never believe the data. <laughs> um, believe what you're hearing, the, the feedback you're getting in, real, in the real world. Um, <clears throat> but I wrote this book because, number one, I just wanted to remember everything that happened before it all goes out of my memory. Because so much, he's doing so much, and it's such a fire hose every day. Just covering him as a weekend show, we're just inundated with all the bad things. And there's so many bad things that you can't keep up with it. You know, he's accused of rape, and then two days later, no one's talking about it. Right. Right? It's all gone. Um, and I didn't want everything to be wiped away. So I wanted to provide people with a history so you could hold on to it and remember what happened so that no one can ever rewrite him as a cuddly George Herbert Walker Bush. So that was one thing. Um, the second reason I wrote it is kind of as a warning, is that I, I really want Americans to do what South Africa did, confront our past confront our racial past, because if we don't, we're at risk. You know, racism is not just a bad thing now. It's also a national security threat to the United States. Mm. So I wanted to write a book that hopefully even Republicans could read and say, okay, this is the past. We do need to face it and deal with it and lance that boil before it kills us. Um, And I'm hoping um, that when people read it, they will get a sense that we can confront the past and it won't kill us. It's not an accusation about you to confront the past, even in your own history. Um, But it could save the country if we do it and if we do it well. Um, And I wrote it hopefully as a history of a one-term president. (laughs) (laughs) If he wins again, I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, I think there'll be a mass exit to Canada, Paris, you know, (laughs) well, we always say, we always say that, you know, I know, but you know, the reality, Joy, is that, you know, that used to be the thing, we'll go to Paris, but with this sort of poison spreading and, and with this guy hanging out with the worst dictators almost in every country, on every continent, there's almost nowhere you can run because it's everywhere. Right. This poison just it's spreads. Everywhere. You just have to it's stay everywhere. in fight. Yeah, yeah, so. you just yeah, you have to stay in fight. It's everywhere. I mean, and right, France used to be where black folk would run. It's in France. It's in Germany. They're trying to take down Angela Merkel's party, which is right now the leader of the free world. It's in Britain. You know, my husband's British. We're like, we'll go to London. Oh, Brexit. (laughs) You know, it's there everywhere. It's in Italy. It's everywhere. It's in the Philippines. It's in Turkey. The same poison. And it's just going to spread more because climate change is driving more people to move. Mm. Climate change is dislodging people from all over the Middle East and Africa and pushing them into Europe. And violence and climate change together are pushing people north into the United States. People aren't coming here because they just want to. They're coming here because they're being driven out of Colombia and, 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 and other countries, Honduras, um, and places that are so violent, partly because of America's addiction to drugs and the drug cartels, that they don't have any choice but to run. And people have always fled when it gets really, really bad. And so we talk about leaving they talk about leaving, too, and right. that's what they're doing. That's why they're coming here. So I am with you, Bill. I think at this point, we're here. Right. Our ancestors got dragged here. Um, in my case, my, my family immigrated here. My mother's ancestors got dragged to Guyana. But this is mm. our hemisphere. This right. is our country, and we can't let them take it. Right. And if mm. they have to stew in the minority and be pushed back down and white nationalists like Richard Spencer have to be clamped back down and feel suppressed, Okay, they just have to do that because this country is supposed to belong to the people who believe in democracy and freedom and equality. It was meant to belong to the people who believe in that. And at the end of the day, we have to win. 
Yeah. So I guess yeah. I'll just stay here and fight. Yeah. We can win. Yeah. Translation, yeah, vote, yeah. vote and get out the vote. Right. Yes. And, yes, indeed. And, yes, and, sir. Uh, I guess cool. Joy Pete, AM, the host of AM Joy, her book is The Man Who Sold America, Trump and the Unraveling of the American Story. Uh, it's an important read. And um, Joy Reid, an important read by Joy Reid. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Joy, this has been really, really tremendous, sobering, but it's been very enjoyable. Thank uh, you. <laughs> I, I try to make the book enjoyable yet sobering, too. It's not like, it's, it's a little pressing, but I tried to make it. Yeah, easy to read. <laughs> hey, but thank you very much, Joy. You got to come back, and uh, good luck with uh, selling tons and tons of books. It's, it's not only your own for the survival of, of this country. <laughs> yes, well, thank you very much. I appreciate you guys. Thanks. Thanks for being on. All right. right. Thank you, Joy. All right, Jamal. All right. Thank you, guys. Another great job. All right, guys. And uh, we'll see you next week. God bless. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Bye. Take care, Joy. Thank you, Joy. listening to believe you can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform check us out at believe.com and search for b-l-e-a-v on youtube you know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks that's what our podcast people are the worst brings you with each episode i'm rachel And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.